Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is a BYU student, age eight, age 19, my friend Seth Cannon from Medford, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast, Seth. Thanks. And here with Seth, although won't be on the podcast, are um, often my guests bring people with them, and that's great. And we have Seth's older brother, Josh. Um, with us, and also Josh's wife, Courtney, with us. So thank you for being here. And Josh offered a wonderful prayer before we started. Um, Seth is one of the podcast guests that tracked me down and reached out and just shared a little bit of his story. And often those then turn into people becoming guests on the podcast. Not all the time, but often that does happen. So Seth is going to talk about his story at age 19 at BYU, um, not able to serve a mission. And we'll talk about what it's like to be um, a BYU student active in the church and not be a return missionary. But part of that story is Seth's journey with um, scrupulosity, which has been re which has been recently diagnosed. But also um, the process of serving a mission. He was honest with some of his emotional health and has gone through LDS Family Services and assessment to sort of see if he's ready and. And, and because of scrupulosity, um, Seth has um, survived a suicide attempt, if that's the, or, or two, and has also had some um, periods of time with self-harm. And he is willing to come on the podcast and kind of talk about that in a very vulnerable and honest way. And I've learned that um, that helps others of you that are listening that will find things in Seth's story that go, that's me. And what Seth is learning and what he's doing can help me. Um, Seth calls that, before we went live, wants to be a voice for the voiceless. So some of you are out there. And what Seth's brave enough to do will help you. It'll also help you that are local leaders or parents or siblings of people going through difficult emotional journeys and know how to support them and help them. So I've just visited with Seth for 10 minutes and had tears in my eyes before we we went live because I just recognize this is a really good man who has been walking a very difficult road, really through no choice of his own. He didn't do something at age 10 to cause this all to happen. It's just the good man that he is, but the unique things that have come into his life that are really outside of his control. And so is that a fair introduction, Seth? Uh, yeah. Uh very, a very nice introduction, so thanks. Anything to correct by the bio or anything? Uh, no. And um, let's just, I think what we want to do for our listeners is talk about Seth's life um, in um, junior high and high school and just and then talk about then his desire to serve a mission, turning in his papers. And I think he's turned in his papers several times and have gone through the assessment process for LDS Family Service, but still isn't cleared to serve a mission. And I had some YSAs that that was part of the – that happened to them, and that can be pretty difficult road to navigate when you want to serve a mission, and the church is sort of saying, well, uh, we're not going to let you serve. And that can create a lot of conflict and a lot of feelings of, wait a second, um, that's just a difficult road to walk. And um, and then talk about what he's doing at BYU. Seth is a sociolog sociology and economics major, a sophomore at BYU, wants to go to grad school in economics. Take us back to junior high or high school when you just realized your emotional health wasn't where you wanted it to be. 
Yeah, um, I think I always felt like a pretty normal kid. I definitely had some perfectionist tendencies. Um, really wanted to be the best in everything that I did. Uh, felt pretty normal though um, until high school where I think I really started to realize that something wasn't completely right. Uh, junior year of high school was really when I um, really felt like uh, I needed to get some help. Uh, that was definitely a process. Uh, beginning of junior year, I, I felt pretty lonely. Uh, and so I kind of started to turn to self-harm as a way to um, release kind of some of that pain. Um, some part of my scrupulosity is really an obsession with uh, not hurting those that I love and that I care about and uh, just helping them. And so during that year, I really hurt some of uh, my relationships and hurt some people that I cared about. And so that really uh, drove me into a pretty dark place um, where I had contemplated suicide for a while. And then uh, one night I did try. Uh, it's I definitely consider myself really blessed that I didn't succeed. Um, I definitely know that it was a total miracle. So I'm really grateful that the Lord uh, intervened in that case. Uh, after that, I think I really got on the road to uh, recovery and I opened up to my parents about some of this stuff. I started seeing a really great therapist um, and, you know, all during this uh, entire experience, I never thought that it would change any other part of my future. Uh, I had always planned on going to Europe, BYU, then submitting my papers, serving mission, getting home, getting married, uh, and all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it. some of those decision, decisions that I made uh, that junior year of high school kind of set me down a trajectory, which um, wasn't exactly the uh, typical missionary route. And so that definitely came into play uh, in my freshman year of college when I was trying to submit my papers. Uh, I had submitted them. I had my appointment with my stake president set up. Uh, and then my bishop uh, was just like, you know, maybe we should just get you checked out by LDS Family Services uh, just to make sure that they're clearing you to go. Um, so I went and talked with them and uh, they did not clear me to go. Uh, so I remember after that night, um, where my bishop texted me and, you know, kind of told me that, uh, we're going to have to slow down a bit on the mission papers. I just, uh, went home and started crying just cause I felt like, uh, I had totally and completely failed in my priesthood duty and that I had had this plan laid out for me, um, you know, and I couldn't complete it at that time. And that was a, a real, real struggle for me. And um, the reason that I failed the psychological evaluation the first time was because of the su suicide attempt in my junior year of high school. They wanted some more time between uh, that and the most uh, recent suicide attempt. So, Thanks on behalf of all our listeners just sharing all that pretty vulnerable stuff with us. That just takes courage. You know, there's just a few of us in the room right now. Um, so thank you. And it, I think that really helps lay the framework. One of the things that you said, um, I want to go back to self-harm because I had no experience with self-harm. Why would someone just walk us through self-harm? Why would someone do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so 
I do have scrupulosity, which is a type of uh, OCD. And so OCD, you know, you have your obsessions and your compulsions. And so, uh, like I was talking about, one of my major obsessions was making sure I was helping everyone around me. Uh, There's also a bit of just making sure I was always on the straight and narrow. And um, over the past year, it's definitely become, you know, like I've been obsessing with serving a mission. And so it's uh, been tough whenever I don't reach those goals. And so one way that I cope with it that I feel like I can kind of even the judgment bar almost is by punishing myself uh, with uh, physical pain. And so um, when I engage in those activities, it does feel um, like I'm kind of inflicting the punishment on myself so that I can become uh, good in the sight of God again and I can like progress. And obviously that's not how God views any of us, uh, but to me, in my mind, that's how it often feels uh, like the judgment bar is going to be is, you know, did you suffer enough uh, to equal all the sins that you've committed? Um, That's excellent. And I love this line. I wrote it down, even the judgment bar. Um, And I love that you've identified part of your scrupulosity is you don't want to hurt people. And so then, like me, when we hurt people, sometimes that's intentional because we're mad at somebody and sometimes we don't know we hurt somebody, then it sounds like if you have scrupulosity and that's one of the things you really care about people in maybe even a higher level than a typical, you know, Latter-day Saint, that then you're then harder on yourself because of the scrupulosity than just someone without scrupulosity. Does that seem right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the times we only see the best of other people. And so it can be tough when I look around and I see all these amazing people who are being amazing friends and who are constantly lifting each other up. And so whenever I feel like I'm dragging someone down or I'm being a negative influence on them, um, that's something that I definitely really struggle with. So, and. And then to re- – so I, I sometimes go back to – because I understand this better, someone that compulsively washes their hands. That is – I think that's called the compulsion. That sort of relieves the tension um, because it's part of just, you know, ending the, the cycle and it releases the tension. Is that the same for you when you when you harm yourself? Is that sort of the same parallel or is that different? Yeah, yeah. I think – once I, you know, kind of feel that physical pain, I can see it, um, you know, see where I did do that physical pain on my body. I feel like I can, you know, put aside that uh, mistake that I made and that I can move forward. And obviously that's a, you know, very poor way of looking at it. And um, I've come to realize that if I just uh, engage in that physical harm, I'm going to continue to feel bad about uh, whatever activity drove me to that place in the first place. Until It's not until like I actually turn to Christ and use his atonement that I can finally uh, move past those mistakes. Talk about when you were this, it, when you were a junior, you were pushing people away that wanted to help you. Talk about that. And was that just a natural thing or was that part of what was going on in your head? Yeah. So... I think I definitely began to notice that I was not 
uh, the most fun person to be around. I was going through uh, a depressive period of my life. And so I felt like I was constantly just being negative around people and I wasn't being the most sensitive and um, I wouldn't notice when my friends were struggling. And so I didn't want to kind of add, I'm really all about that, like finding, like reaching equilibrium and, and coming to a balance. And so I felt like I couldn't add to a relationship. Um, like I couldn't ask more of them without giving more of myself. And at that time I couldn't really give more of myself. I wasn't in a place where I could do that. And so I'd feel horrible about asking for more from those that I cared about. And, um, the thing about relationships is that often people will notice when you're struggling. And so they try and help me. And I just feel so horrible about taking up their time and the resources. And, um, you know, I definitely kind of start to push them away in some ways and, um, you know, that hurt them and which would also obviously make me feel worse about myself. And so it's kind of just a really negative cycle. Talk about um, your scrupulosity. You've talked, I think before we went live, I tried to write down there's really almost three times you had religious perfectionism. Um, you didn't want to hurt people and this desire to serve a mission. Is that is that right? There's kind of three yeah. parts of your scrupulosity. Um, talk about um, why this led to self-harm and then it jumped to a suicide attempt. Is Anything you want to share with our listeners about just what happened there? Yeah, I think so. Self harm came from that place of needing to find a balance and needing to um, punish myself for the sins that I committed. I think the jump to suicidal ideation came from um, a couple of different places. First, just not feeling like I could handle life anymore and just feeling like uh, it was too much. Um, but then also some of those um, obsessions that uh, we've been talking about, I felt like I had been such a burden on other people that if I just uh, killed myself, uh, they wouldn't have to worry about me anymore and they could move on with their lives and uh, be happier without me. And um, you know, again, when I'm feeling good, I can see how illogical that is and how, um, suicide is, is never, ever the answer. And, you know, but in my mind during those times, it felt like that was the only way out and the only way that I could finally, uh, release the people who were trying to take care of me from those obligations. Really well articulated. Thanks. <laughs> um, thank you for that. Um, I think of, you won't like me saying this, <laughs> but there was a lot of unselfishness in what you just said. I mean, I think sometimes we think people that are contemplating suicide or having a suicide attempt are very selfish and they're just looking out for themselves and that may be true or they want to intentionally hurt others and that may be true, but really everything you said was mostly outward focused on other people, even though you recognize that this would have, on some level now, you recognize how painful this would have been for people that you loved. Your mind was at a point where you thought this would actually help people that you loved because you were a burden. Is that fair, Seth? Or 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's a fair amount of selfishness in it as well. But I, I was definitely concerned a lot about my relationship with others and how I was affecting them. So, One of the models of suicidality, if that's a word, I think it is, is, the perceive, is a perceived feeling of burdenness by the joiner model. And it has kind of these three circles. One is that... Um, can't remember what they all are. I think one is a perception that um, we're a burden. And the second one is we're actually messing up our family's eternal plan. And um, it, especially if we're, you know, stepping away from the church or for LGBTQ members that step away, they get a little more this way because they just feel like they're a burden and they're messing up their family's eternal plan. And maybe you felt some of that with um, not being able to serve a mission. And then um, the third circle is sort of a higher um, disposition for risk. Um, if you kind of get all three of those circles interacting, you get somebody that's more likely to attempt a suicide. Does that Have you heard of that model before, Seth, or does uh, that no, resonate? I'm definitely going to go look it up, though, after this podcast is over. So. so for those of you that want to learn more about that, there's a podcast we did by Professor Brethwaite at BYU, and he talked about that. Um, you could just Google my name and Scott Brethwaite, and that would come up. It's a really good podcast. It helped me understand just why some people may be more suicidal than others. And I often think it's a lot of factors that came together for you, a lot of different circles that overlapped and created that little overlapping spot that brought you into the spot. I know I haven't met your parents. We haven't even talked about your parents. I would sense you have really good parents that are doing, and you're nodding your head up and yeah. down. So mom and dad, if you're listening, you just got to know that, you know, I just sense you did everything you could during this time, and I'm a parent. And what, I mean, tell our listeners what advice you have for parents that have a kid in your spot, because there's a lot of parents that sort of say, I... They're pushing me away. I know they're going downhill. I don't know what I can do. If they were a younger kid, I could just, you know, I would know what to do. But these are more complicated teenager things. And this is sort of out of my tool box of things to, what advice would you give for parents? Yeah. Um, you know, I, looking back, I know that both my friends and all my family members, and especially my parents, were inspired in uh, the ways that they tried to help me. And um, I still really, really regret, um, you know, some of the times when I did try to push them away and I didn't express my gratitude for how much they were doing for me. I think my parents were amazing at making sure that I always knew that they loved me no matter what choices that um, I was making. And that made a huge difference in my life. I, I know a lot of the times I don't think I, I showed it and I didn't um, show how I also love them. Um, but the fact that I could know that I would come home to parents and uh, family members who loved me and who accepted me, uh, that made such a huge, huge difference. And it can definitely be tough sometimes to uh, constantly show that love and kind of balance that with, you know, setting rules and expectations and stuff. But I think my parents coming from a place of their primary objective being to make me know that I was loved, uh, 
that made a huge difference in my life. After the suicide attempt, did you get professional? Had you received? Were you having any counseling before then, or did it start after the suicide attempt? Um, so I, I hadn't received any professional help. Um, I kind of had looked up some stuff online on my own, uh, but nothing uh, really that um, you know actual professional help. Um, and so. Uh, after that attempt, a couple of weeks later, I kind of started to talk to my parents about, uh, you know, some of the more mental health struggles that I've been facing. Uh, they encouraged me to see a counselor. Um, it definitely took me a couple of different professionals until I found one that fit for me. Uh, but I eventually found one that I saw for uh, the majority of the rest of my high school career that really really helped me and helped me kind of work through some of these emotions and that really created a safe place for me to talk about some of these feelings and you know he was getting paid so i felt all right burdening him with some of those Good. some of those thoughts so. awesome what give us an idea of what tools the counselor gave you or what he i think you said he sort of gave you skills, tools, understanding to put you in a better spot emotionally. Yeah, so he was actually also a, a member of the church, uh, which was super helpful. And definitely how my mind works is I love to understand kind of um, what's happening, you know, at like a deeper subconscious level before, you know, trying to attack just like the the negative thoughts and stuff. And so he did a great job, I think, of both approaching from a scientific perspective and, you know, talking like, this is what's going through your mind. This is why, you know, you're turning to self-harm and then also approaching it from a gospel perspective of helping me understand where my, mis where my understanding of the atonement was incorrect and really helping me to come to understand that the atonement is, um, not like a deal where I have to um, do some certain steps and then I can make up for all my mistakes, but that Christ has already suffered um, for me and for all those sins and that there is nothing that I can do um, or not do or feel or not feel that will make God love me any more or any less. So That's great doctrine. It's cool that an LDS counselor taught you that. Um, I just want everybody to hear what Seth just said. There's, you know, Christ has already suffered all the pain, so he's not suffering new pain because of my sins. So this sort of, I need to um, even, uh, even the judgment bar by however our minds would do that, in your case, self-harm, is not doctrinally accurate. And maybe you knew that at the time on some level, but it really helped that this counselor just clearly communicated. And I love this idea that God doesn't love me more or less based on anything. It's just set. My worth is set, as another podcast guest taught me. She had this line, my worth is set, everything else is experience. Um, and I really like that line because I believe that is our doctrine. Talk, um, Seth, about... Um, he, other tools he gave you. So he taught you better about the doctrine of our, our church, about Christ and the atonement. What other things did he help you with as far as just for your emotional help? Yeah, so he never labeled it scrupulosity, but he really did um, 
helped me attack that perfectionism that I was feeling uh, through a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and so he'd walk me through some of these things that I felt guilty about and some of these relationships that I felt like I was being a burden. Um, and, and he really uh, helped me come to the realization that uh, it was okay that sometimes I was taking up extra time of a friend or a family member and that it was okay if sometimes, you know, I was feeling extra negative and that I shared that, uh, how I was feeling with them because I think he did a great job of, you know, putting me in my friend's shoes and being like, how would you feel, you know, if your friend was coming to you and telling you about these things and, you know, obviously I'd never feel like, oh, they're taking up so much of my time or I don't want to hear about this, you know, so that that really did help. That's good. What would you say to other juniors in high school that are, or anybody that's suicidal right now? I think you, I think everyone has that point in their life where they just feel like, everything around them is just darkness and black and they just feel helpless and um you know the way i describe it is just you know like curled into the fetal position is just you know just these this darkness and all these you know angry voices just crashing on you and i feel like because i've managed to you know, go through that valley of sorrow and emerge on the other side, there has become so much more meaning in life. Um, you know, when I wake up and I actually feel like going to classes on a given day, I that's just such an amazing feeling for me. And that just feels so great. Um, but it's only by pushing through and getting through that dark time that you can uh, see the benefit of, you know, a sunrise. And I know for me, it was a real struggle to feel like I was just surviving, like that was an accomplishment. But looking back, um, I think those days where I um, chose to continue to fight just one more day, even if I wasn't the kindest or uh, wasn't reaching out the most or um, doing any of the things that I know I should have been doing, um, that decision to continue to fight was one of the hardest but the best decisions that I'd ever made. So I would just urge you to continue to fight. Um, you're going to get through it, and uh, it, it can definitely be tough, but it, it will be worth it in the end. Really good answer. Once I had someone that was suicidal that I was interacting with, and I said, well, just see that light at the end of the tunnel. And you let that light represent hope. And then that person told me, he says, there's no light at the end of the tunnel for me. And does that, does that resonate for you sometimes where you just felt there's no light? Wait a second. This is just, I don't see any of that. And what would you say to someone who said that to you? Um, yeah, I, I've definitely felt that. And I would acknowledge that those feelings are very real and that it can be easy for someone on the outside to see kind of the broader picture and see like, look, this, this is going to get better. But when you're in the thick of it, it can just feel uh, like that time's never going to happen. And that sometimes you're the one choice that you can make is, you know, whether to end everything or to continue uh, to just for, forge out into the, the darkness. Um, I think I would tell them that 
those feelings are very, very real. And that in this moment, um, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, but that, that light will um, eventually come to them. And in the moment, it seems like that time will never come. Uh, but if you just keep on pushing through one day after the other, and you know, sometimes it can take weeks or months or even years. Um, I, I, I think looking back, it's during those darkest moments when I've been able to feel God's love the closest. And sometimes during those exact same moments, I felt angry at God and I felt completely alone. Uh, but there will just be, you know, brief flashes or just like singular moments of just feeling that loving, enveloping presence uh, that you kind of just cling to. Um, when you kind of go back down into the fog. And I'm really, really grateful for a loving Heavenly Father who knows exactly what we need and when to push us and when to uh, give us that support. I, I've always loved the fact that Christ um, was left alone for a bit in Gethsemane because uh, I think that's a feeling that we can all relate to, feeling completely, completely alone. and. You know, I'd like to think that we we're all in heaven looking down and just wishing we could do anything uh, to help our Savior, but knowing that um, if our Heavenly Father intervened, that there was no hope for us. Um, I feel like there are a lot of people above who feel the exact same way about us, who wish that they could just take away all of our problems and who could make us feel uh, not alone and make us feel that eternal love always, uh, but that they know that they can't, but that if we can emerge um, through those dark times into uh, tomorrow, that we're going to look back and see how far we've come. And uh, I'm really, really grateful for Heavenly Father who loves me so much that he can let me struggle and let me feel like I'm alone, even though, you know, truly we're never alone. So, Seth, that's a beautiful segment. Hope you realize how beautiful that was. Thanks. And there's no way you could have shared that if you hadn't walked this road. There's no way you could have just said what you said if you hadn't have known the loneliness and the difficult road. And that's what makes you be able to heal and help others is because you know this road. On your suicide attempt, did someone find you or did you just come out of that on your own? Uh, yeah, so my parents were actually out of town. Um, I was babysitting my younger siblings, and so they had already all gone to bed. And so it was kind of just a couple of really uh, tense hours where, um, you know, I was kind of engaging in just a pattern of, you know, self-harm, then feeling horrible, then more self-harm. And I got to the point where um, I did, uh, trying to hang myself. Um, a couple minutes later, I woke up lying on the ground and I just went to bed at that point. Um, did you tell anybody immediately what had happened or did that take some time? Uh, it took some time. Uh, I actually didn't tell my parents the full story for uh, a year or so. Um, that's because you don't want to add to anybody else's burden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's exactly. not because you don't love your parents and they don't love you. Yeah. Um, why did you tell someone and why was that helpful? Um, 
I why didn't I tell someone? Why did we, you eventually? Oh, okay. And why I, was that then helpful to actually okay. tell somebody? Yeah. Um, eventually, I felt like I feel like there is nothing more uh, intimate, I guess, than sharing that. Uh, kind of your darkest times. And so I felt the the first people that I opened up to were others who I knew were struggling and who I felt like I could um, help in some way by sharing that knowledge that I had been there too. And uh, the first couple of times I was really, really bad at sharing it and it kind of just came out in pieces. And uh, I think as I've slowly told more and more people, um, I've been able to see how it can help those who are going through uh, similar situations or even different you know, trials altogether. Um, we all struggle in different ways and knowing that someone else has been there and knowing the lessons that they've uh, learned, uh, I think can be really helpful. I, the people that open up about their darkest times become some of my heroes. Um, and I love this, some of my listeners, this is a longer quote um, by Henry Norwin. There's two that I read, and I don't read this one as frequently. Um, he's a Catholic priest. Over the last few years, I've become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through sharing of our weaknesses. Uh, mostly we are so afraid of our weaknesses that we hide them at all costs and thus make them unavailable to others but also often to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires. One life in which we present ourselves to the world, to ourselves and to God as the person who is control, and another life in which we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, and anxious, and totally out of control. And now if I advance this, I sometimes lose this quote. There it is. The split between these two lives can cause a lot of suffering. I have become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming this great chasm between these two lives, and I am becoming more and more aware that facing with others the reality of our existence can be the beginning of being truly free. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community came possible to the degree I was able to share my weaknesses with others. Often I became aware of the fact that in sharing of my weaknesses, and I'm not even sure I'd call your situation a weakness, Seth, it's just your honest journey. Um, with others, the real depth of my human brokenness and weakness and sinfulness started to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. And as long as I try to convince myself or others of my independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building up my own false self. But once I am able to truly confess my profound dependence on others and on God, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, looking back at like the people that I've become the closest friends with, it's always been those who are willing to uh, take that first step and open up about their own struggles. Uh, and I feel like that just adds such a, a deeper level of trust and knowing uh, to a relationship. I know most of the time I just want to be able to present my very best self and not show any cracks uh, kind of in that mask of you know happiness and um, just always being, you know, optimistic about everything. And, uh, but it's those people who are willing to, uh, open up about their own weaknesses and who show their own, uh, frailties and failures. Uh, those are the people that I really, really, 
um, yeah, the, the, those are my heroes too. And those are the ones that I feel like I can open up to um, as well. And that I know uh, I can always go to whenever I'm struggling with something. I love that. And I wonder, sometimes I think what we can do in our ward cultures to create more of that feeling. I think culturally we have this perfectionism where everybody's their best selves and we're not vulnerable and honest and real. And our own bishop in a testimony meeting recently talked about his losing battle with his diet. <laughs> and he's not fat, but he was honest, just that he needs to lose weight and he never is able to do it. And I just love that he was real. And I think I thought to myself, well, if I need to go talk to that bishop, I just know he's real. Elder Holland feels real to me when he talks about this talk about the broken vessel and his own journey with his mental health. And I think, well, there's something I've never talked to Elder Holland. You know, I probably never will have that chance. But I just sense if I were with him for 20 minutes and opened up about something in my life that's difficult, he would get it. And so I've thought, you know, that's any thoughts on what we can do in our local wards to create a feeling, especially for our high school age, junior high youth, that they, that they, that they can open up about what's really going on in their life. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that is something as a church we, if we could improve on, um, would yield a lot of benefits. Well. So, I mean, growing up in a family of five boys, one little girl, um, I, I don't think we opened up a lot emotionally uh, as, as uh, kids. And I, I mean, still to this day, I struggle with it, but I just always felt like the black sheep in my family. And like I had these siblings who were doing absolutely amazing things and who were all uh, serving missions and just... Uh, doing all these great acts of service and reaching these accomplishments. And I just felt like I was so inadequate and like I did not belong in this family at all. And as I've grown older, um, as I've kind of moved past that, uh, you know, as I've recognized that everyone has their own struggles and everyone has their own weaknesses, um, it, it's been, uh, I, I felt like, you know, I do belong in uh, my family and I feel like you know they are people that I can um, go to and ask for blessings or uh, uh, just ask for you know prayers or help and uh, that's been uh, really really great for my mental health so transitioning that to uh, the ward scale I still think that we see all these people who are magnifying their callings and who are giving these great lessons and great talks and it can be tough to feel like you belong. Um, I think the talks that I most remember have never been the perfect ones that have a great joke in the beginning and then uh, give some great doctrine, read some scriptures and then sit down. Uh, those aren't the ones that stick with me. They're the ones who uh, from the pulpit uh, share trials from their own lives. And those are the ones that help me feel the spirit the most and who make me feel like I have a place in the church because, you know, we are all uh, struggling with different things and all of us are coming to church because we need to find some support. And I think if we're all trying to find that support while still showing that, you know, we don't need that support, it can uh, sometimes have a really negative effect on the culture in uh, the ward as a whole. Well said. 
Great segment. Talk about, let's go back to your mission. Um, we're recording this in February of 2020. When did you first send your papers in? Uh, February of 2019. So this has been going on a year. Yeah. Um, and just describe that, what's going on right now. You went to LDS Family Services. They sort of gave you a no. Um, just so our listeners understand, when I was a singles word bishop, I didn't know this part of the process, but there's questions that missionaries answer on their application that then the bishop or the stake president may see that are emotional health related, they're not worthiness related, that would cause the bishop or stake president to say, I want to get, because they know if they send it up to the missionary department, the missionary department may kick it back. So at least in my experience, we proactively went to LDS Family Services before we even submit the papers to the missionary department and would get their sort of clinical expertise involved, so to speak, before we would then send the mission. And then it sounds like in your case, they came back with, a, I don't know, oh no, or a wait, or, and just talk, how does that make you feel and how long has that been going on? Yeah, so about every couple of months now, um, I'll come back to the same uh, counselor, uh, same worker at LDS Family Services, and we'll sit down and uh, we'll talk for a couple minutes. And then um, at least for him, he has a couple of metrics that he works by when recommending missionaries. Uh, he really wants to, he says that the mission department really wants to see uh, four to six months without any self-harm. and. Uh, four to six months without any changes in medication levels, uh, just so you know you can be seen as actually stable. Um, and I mean, looking back when I first uh, got rejected, I was absolutely distraught. And now, with the benefit of hindsight, I think if I had gone out uh, last February, I wouldn't have lasted very long at all uh, before. I had a you know just complete breakdown, and so I'm really grateful for the year that I've had uh, to kind of understand more about myself and to kind of have that goal to work towards. Uh, it's always tough getting rejected, uh, you know, for these uh, mental health reasons, and just wanting to serve a mission and have kind of this bureaucracy tell you no. Uh, but I know that it does come from a position of love that the church really does just want uh, every missionary to have the best possible experience that they can have. And sometimes that means waiting and sometimes that means uh, not serving at all. What What's your impression? What will happen to you? Do you still hope to serve or do you feel like that's not going to happen? Um, so yeah, every, you know, I always tell people like, oh yeah, I'm serving after the semester and uh, I'm still here after every semester. And so, uh, I'd like to say that I'm leaving after spring term. That's my new goal. Um, I think that if the Lord had told me that uh, first time, like you are not going to serve a mission or you're at least not going to serve a mission for 18 months, um, that would have been really, really tough for me to hear. And so uh, I'm still kind of in that place where I'm like, I, I feel like I can do it. I, I feel like I can... Uh, get there and pass those requirements and get out on my mission. But also there have been moments of peace where I've recognized that serving a mission is not a saving ordinance and that uh, we, you know, for some people it's not the path and that you can do a lot of good um, even if you haven't served a mission. 
So does it make you angry sometimes that there's this more temporal part of our church, this more administrative that may, do you feel like sometimes they don't fully understand you and they're blocking you from serving a missionary? Is, or is it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sometimes there's frustration in the process that can even be hard on people's testimonies. Yeah. Um, yeah, there have for sure been those times where um, I remember a couple of those uh, interviews with uh, family services where I walked out just fuming and just ticked off and, you know, so just like, why do these policies exist? I just want to be serving a mission. I feel like that's a good desire. I feel like it's a righteous desire. I feel like the Lord is going to help me uh, out in the mission field. Just please just let me go and see what happens. Um, and I've definitely... A, I love what you just said, by the way. I I think... God would sit, be very comfortable with you hearing, with hearing that from you. And uh, well, he's definitely heard it from me. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, and I, I've shared some of that with my priest leaders, and they've been very understanding. Um, and I've shared that with some uh, LDS Family Services people, and they are also understanding. Uh, Good. Yeah, and I I think that those rules do exist for a reason, and that we are living in a mortal world where sometimes or always we're acting with limited information. And I'm really grateful that the church does have some policies uh, put in place uh, to deal with mental health and, and keeping our missionaries healthy. And it sucks that I'm kind of on the wrong side of that right now, but... Um, I can look at it from a logical perspective and say and understand why some of these rules are there. It's honest. Um, I just I I look at that whole missionary process as a administrative part and a spiritual part, and I look at the interviews with the bishop and the stake president being spiritual, and they have a chance to directly feel your spirit and your desire to serve, and they can recommend you to serve. And it sounds like you've supported priesthood leaders that feel good about you serving. And then there's this administrative part that looks at medical records and emotional health. And and that, to me, is, I hope our listeners are okay with that. I don't look at that necessarily as a spiritual process. I just look at it as an administrative process that then... Um, really is an administrative process until a member of the 12, you know, assigns you to a mission. And I think that's then when there's a spiritual process there, when um, I really deeply believe that when a member of 12 assigns someone a mission, that that is a spiritual process and that that person has priesthood revelation, just like your local leaders do. But I sort of sense there's this administrative and with processing 40,000 missionaries every two years or every year, I recognize the need for that. It sounds like you do at some level. But I think sometimes in that administrative process, we just, because it is an administrative process, we just at times had to, I don't know what the right words are, we just make it hard. <laughs> Not that we've made any mistakes necessarily in your situation, but it can, it's possible we do. Um, in that administrative process, we don't have exceptions and we don't, um, have spiritual insight to see this should be an exception, and this is where self-harm after two months, we actually should let this guy go. And there's not a priesthood leader there involved in that process with a spiritual impression to sort of make an exception. So I just recognize it's 
at times complicated. Is that okay, Seth? Or yeah, that is honestly so great to hear because uh, it's definitely something that um, I've struggled with. And it, I feel like it's really good to separate, at least for me, my testimony of the spiritual aspects of the church and this process from the administrative. And I can still have a testimony of the church and of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and of President Nelson while still having some you know, doubts about uh, particular policies. Did it ever make you not want to be honest in your... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, uh, I'm really and grateful. Maybe you know people that haven't been honest in that sort of mental health assessment. Yeah, I'm grateful for amazing friends, especially in my uh, freshman year where uh, I really wanted to not be honest and they encouraged me very lovingly to... Uh, share my full story, even though I just want to be out there. So I'm grateful. Are you glad you did that? Um, most days. <laughs> uh, most days there are days where I'm struggling with uh, not being an RM at BYU that I definitely wish I was just, I just checked a couple boxes differently and I just got out there and uh, I'd seen what happened, but. Most days I can say that honesty is the best policy. It's a really honest answer. Great answer. Talk about what it's like to be at BYU and not a return missionary. What what could I, if I were in your YSA ward or in your circle, what are things that I could say that would be triggering or things that would be helpful? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, all my roommates are... are RRMs. Um, most of the people in my life are RMs. Uh, I'm a TA right now. Most of the kids I uh, TA for are RMs. And so it can feel like I really um, just don't belong among these great people who have all had these 18 months or two years or even shorter um, experiences that I just haven't had. And uh, you know, just this morning I was out of breakfast and everyone was going around swapping mission stories and someone asked me where I served and I was like, oh, I haven't served yet. And there's always that kind of like half moment of, you know, pause and, you know, almost always people are just great and just loving and it's definitely a bit easier because I am pretty young. Um, you know, being only 19, people can sometimes still just assume that I'm just waiting. Uh, you know, I am starting my junior year of college uh, pretty soon, so it can be uh, tough to continue to hide behind that excuse of age, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely something that I have really, really struggled with. One of the main reasons that uh, sometimes getting up for church and getting there on Sunday is really tough for me is because I know that uh, almost always someone's going to share a story from their mission, um, you know, whether it's in elders quorum or sacrament meeting or fast and testimony meeting, you know, and, and I understand that want and that desire, uh, you know, it's, it was a big period of your life where a lot of, uh, changes happened. Um, for someone who is struggling with feelings of self-worth already and feeling like they're not good enough, uh, to serve a mission and wondering if they are good enough to be in the church, not having that, um, I guess having that reminder uh, that they haven't served can be really, really tough sometimes. And so I would just uh, 
encourage everyone to be sensitive uh, that there are different situations um, in your social circle. Uh, and, you know, please just don't make comments about, uh, you know, you know, it's your priest of duty, right? Or, you know, I'm only ever going to marry an RM because those, those just, I feel like, are not super needed and uh, they can be really, really hurtful sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have um, experienced so much acceptance and love and I'm really, really grateful for the people in my life who have always been there and have uh, never made me feel like I'm worthless um, because I haven't served a mission, um, even though, you know, a lot of times I think I am worthless because I haven't served a mission. And so it can be great to find those people uh, who make it very clear that they uh, see me as a son of God who has uh, maybe gone on a different path than uh, most guys at BYU. Great segment. Talk about your patriarchal blessing. Is there anything in there that's helpful for you? Um, regarding just your, your journey right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, so there is a line that says you will be called to serve as a missionary and to go out into the world and share your testimony of Jesus Christ. And so um, at different times in this process, that has either been a really, really great encouragement and it's been so strengthening to know that it is in my future. Um, at other times, I think it has been very confusing and made me feel like somehow I've messed up God's plan for me and that I'm supposed to be out there right now and that because I'm not, um, I have failed in my priesthood duty and in my, you know, getting these patriarchal blessings, um, the blessings from my patriarchal blessing. Um, there are other lines that uh, talk about my uh, responsibility to uh, serve and help those who are struggling and um, to help those who, who, you know, whose strength is failing, I think is the line. And so that's been really helpful to kind of read and know that perhaps my, uh, one of my missions in life is to not have that exactly stereotypical uh, mission you know, going on a mission, coming home, getting married, um, pattern and to be able to empath empath that to, you know, comfort those, uh, who, um, uh, have different experiences. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that, uh, those lines. I think that they really helped me, uh, come to terms with the fact that I may have a different path, um, than the one that I would want, but that it's still a valid one that can uh, bless uh, the lives of those that I come into contact with. That's great. What you just said was awesome, really, really good. It reminds me, I had one young man, I had two young men who just looked me in the eye as a YSA bishop and said, Ivory, just, it's not my path to serve a mission. And then they told me they were pretty beat up with this, but it's your priesthood duty from prior leaders. And yeah. I think those prior leaders, I would have said the same thing, so I'm not picking on them. But I listened to the, they were just kind of hanging on with their membership in the church. And I just felt impressed to validate their personal revelation. Yeah. 
And I know that's not really your personal revelation because you really want to serve, so it's different. These guys actually felt they weren't supposed to serve. And they knew it was their priesthood duty, and so they had this conflict, and they could either... So I think they were both pretty close to leaving the church. And I just felt impressed to help them feel like they belong, and it's not a priesthood ordinance, to your point, Seth. And and then I kind of lost track of one of those guys, and I was a Salt Lake City temple worker until it closed, and one... Sometimes we welcome the guys getting married and then walk this guy and, you know, he's just on cloud nine. He's getting married in the Salt Lake Temple to his bride and he never served a mission. And that was just, you know, that was in the past. And I just was so grateful for his courage to hang in there with the culture that he was dealing with. And I recognized that I didn't get a chance to meet his bride, but I don't think his bride married him because he did or didn't serve a mission. I think she married that guy because of his great heart and his Christ-like attributes and his unique gifts. And she had gotten past the checklist requirement that she had to return, marry a turned missionary. So whoever she was, I wanted to find her and just give her a big hug because she recognized this great guy. And um, so I love that, you know, I just recognize that everybody's path is different. And I think ward leaders and local leaders can help create a culture with that. And so our members like you feel like they belong um, and we're honoring everybody's individual paths. Um, any more thoughts on that thought? Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I love that. Um, I, uh, my freshman year of college and uh, last fall semester, I was able to date a girl who um, really <clears throat> taught me that um, missions are, you know, it helped me come to terms with the, the fact that you don't need to marry an RM. Um, she's actually on a mission now, and I'm the one who's not home, uh, who hasn't left yet. But she uh, really was honest and willing to say, like, yeah, I... Um, you know, you don't need to be an RM to get married in the temple or marry someone amazing. I think missions can be great indicators of a lot of important things that you want in a spouse. You know, I think they can be great that, you know, you have a testimony and that you're willing to live with those who are different than you. And that can uh, be a great way to know that someone is... Uh, a good person. I also know that there are some amazing, amazing people who, um, you know, some of the people I most look up to in this world haven't served missions. And uh, I think they have all of those traits and more, you know, they still do have a strong testimony and they still are going to make um, or are amazing spouses and parents. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I've struggled with thinking, you know, will a girl be willing to marry me if I'm not an RM and if I don't have those experiences? Um, but yeah, I, I've been really grateful for the people in my life who have shown me that those are not, it's not a necessary thing to have to uh, get married in the temple and to be a great husband or spouse or parent. Oh, well said. And 
someday maybe you'll send me an email and let me know about your upcoming temple marriage. I hope so. (laughs) And I would guess if we could put her on the podcast or she exists somewhere right now, she's going to talk about why she fell in love with you. And it's going to be some of these really wonderful Christ-like attributes that have come into your life because of this journey. You're 19, but your life, I don't talk to many 19-year-olds that can talk like you talk, Seth and have sort of this depth of experience and this empathy, compassion, understanding. And I would guess that that's something that she will fall in love with and she will recognize, and you will be able to go places with her that other guys haven't, just with your emotional connection, which is just one element of a great marriage. And I think she will look at this and say, you will be able to be a better partner for her than any guy she's ever dated and be part of the reason she falls in love with you. And as I said in other podcasts, for guys on your own, you will have better skills as a father, that she will look at your life story and say, this is exactly what I want in my husband for my future kids. And she will get that about you. And it'll be part of her falling in love with you. And and that happens in my mind, whether you serve a mission or not, because of who you are right now. And I just, I believe that really strongly. And so I, I had this checklist, I was going to marry a sister that served a mission and and I didn't I I got past that because I recognized what I was really saying the checklist is I wanted these spiritual gifts in that person so I really if I thought about the checklist I was actually looking for spiritual gifts and attributes and then I recognized that that is not just linear with serving a mission and that can happen for people in different ways and it did for my wife she had all the spiritual gifts I was looking for but had never served a mission um, talk about, unless you want to go back to that, um, I want to talk, ask you a question about scriptures or lessons from the scriptures or favorite scriptures that are helpful for you that you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah. Um, I think over this experience, I've really come to view uh people in the scriptures differently. I think that happens for everyone who's going through trials. You know, you find the people in your scriptures who you can relate to. Uh, for me, one of the people that I've really come to admire is Moroni. Um, I think he is someone, you know, it definitely takes a bit of reading between the lines, but I think he's someone who struggled with mental health. Um, you know, I think most of us, if we're our entire nation had been destroyed and we're wandering around alone for years would struggle with mental health. But I think it's pretty clear to me that um, he's someone who's kind of faced down those days of darkness and, and come through them. Uh, one of my favorite passages is, you know, Ether 1227. Um, uh, the, you know, it's a doctoral mastery in seminary about, you know, overcoming our weaknesses. But to me, it's become a lot more over the past year as I've kind of, it, you know, maybe Moroni is just up there being like, this is totally wrong. But um, if you read right before Ether 1227, Moroni is going on about how bad of a writer he is and how, you know, all the Gentiles, if they don't have the spirit, are going to get nothing from this. And he's a horrible writer and a horrible, you know, just like all this stuff about how bad of a writer is. And, you know, first off, I think we can all agree that None of that's true. He's an amazing writer. You know, Moroni has some absolutely amazing passages. Um, but Ether 1227 comes right after, 
you know, kind of this lawn section about uh, feeling like he doesn't match up to, you know, some of these amazing scriptural heroes that came before him. And then you get this passage where Christ is like, if you come to me, I'm going to show you your weakness and my grace is sufficient. And after that, Moroni makes like one more comment about how he doesn't match up and he's not good at writing. Besides that, it's nothing else about writing. And that's been such a cool testimony builder to me that to me, uh, it seems like Moroni's weakness wasn't writing and it wasn't, you know, kind of uh, translating his thoughts into words. It was uh, comparing himself to those who had come before. Um, and Christ was willing to, as Moroni came to him, Christ showed him kind of that weakness and he was able to overcome it, you know? Um, at least we don't in, in the scriptures him talking about uh, his own weakness at writing again. Uh, but I think Christ's ability to, at least in that story, help us actually see where our true weakness lies and overcome that is a, a beautiful, beautiful principle uh, for me that I have this long list of flaws that I see in myself uh, that I wish I could change, you know, and one of the major ones is I wish I could be on a mission and I wish I could be good enough to check off all these boxes and be out there serving. But as during those times when I am doing a bit better, you know, in my scripture study and, and my relationship with God, and I actually ask him, what I can work on, you know, it almost always comes, uh, the prompting comes back that I need to, you know, focus more on seeing my true worth as the son of God and uh, knowing that, you know, I am enough and that's not a weakness that I perceive in myself. You know, I feel like I just, I have this long list of like all this other stuff that I need to work on, but it's the one that God wants me to work on and it's the one that Christ knows he can help me overcome and that uh, he knows will be very impactful on my happiness. So I'm really, really grateful for Moroni's willingness to share some of those struggles. Uh, it's been super helpful for me and I think it can be really helpful for a lot of other people who are uh, dealing with some of those uh, self-doubting self issues and, and whatever trials you're facing. I love that. And I love these Book of Mormon prophets that are vulnerable. Nephi's another one and Moroni. And I, if I would go back in my church assignments, Seth, I would be more vulnerable. I would be more honest. I've told listeners that I've seen a counselor twice. I was seeing a counselor while I was a singles ward bishop. And I might have opened up more to the YSAs and just said, hey, your own bishop is seeing a counselor right now. Um, I don't share that with you to why it says for you to worry about me. I just share that, that my emotional gas tank gets pretty low sometime and I need clinical people to come in my life and help me. And I just, I I don't know, I, I would have done that, Seth, if I could go back because I think I look at the heroes in my life and they're able to do that and then they're able to reach people because they're authentic. Um, and it didn't, I guess I thought to be the YSA bishop, I kind of had to be have every box checked in every way and sort of be the ultimate example of a male in our church with all those sort of boxes checked to role model. But I recognize that, you know, my my real role is to help my YSCs come into Christ and for me to come into Christ. And often that means just being authentic and real. So 
I think we can culturally learn to do that and recognize that good leaders can open up with their own vulnerabilities. And it, it's part of us coming together as the body of Christ. We're kind of coming to the close. Any other thoughts you'd like to share? Um, I mean, I, I would like just, I know, um, I mean, yeah, I guess I have no idea how this is, uh, podcast will come across, but I am just so, so grateful for all, everyone in my life, um, all my priesthood leaders, my family members, my friends over the years who um, really have been there for me. And uh, I know I've talked a lot about like the culture of the church and everything, but I really am grateful um, for this church and it's brought me closer to Christ. And I'm so grateful that I've been able to be a part of it and that I've been able to uh, rub shoulders with some absolutely amazing people who um, have been open about their weaknesses and who have always um, showed that uh, unconditional love, which I think is so um, such a part of the gospel of Christ, uh, just loving everyone, um, regardless of the choices that they make. And, you know, I know I've made quite a few mistakes, but I'm just uh, so grateful for uh, everyone in my life who continues to uh, support and to love uh, me despite all that. And uh, I hope I can be that for other people too. That's great. One of the things you said, I think, in your patriarchal blessing or earlier says, you know, to go to the end of the whole world. Mm. And I actually thought, well, this podcast is actually mm. going to go to the whole world. I look at the people all across the world that listen to this. It's interesting when I post them at night, we usually post them about midnight or 10 o'clock. But when I wake up in the morning, usually about 1,500 people have listened to them. And I'll go on, and those are people in Europe. Um, why I'm asleep, they're listening. And so in some ways, maybe what you're sharing today is a small uh, beginning of your voice going into all the world in unique ways that you didn't think was possible um, through the platform of other ways to just this podcast and other ways for you to reach other people. Um, there's a couple other lines from your patriarchal blessing that I circled down that I think will continue I love Elder Uchtdorf's impressionistic painting is when you, he sort of talks about all these random dots that when you're in the middle of all the dots, they don't make sense. But as you get older, you can look back. And so I think you're in the middle of that right now. And and I think your older selves will look back and and I think they'll just love who you are right now and the path you're on, Seth. And they will, they will if they could talk to you, they just put their arms around you and say, this is all part of your unique plan. I don't think if if your heavenly parents were here, they would say you're off track or that this has gone different than they'd hoped it or thought it would. I think they'd say, Seth, this is just where we'd hoped you'd be. And I think they would give you a lot of support, more than you think you deserve for the for the for where you are and the things that you've accomplished and the good man that you are and your unique, beautiful life mission ahead of you. And um, I believe that. So you've got a great life ahead of you, Seth. And thanks for being another one of our great guests that vulnerably comes on this podcast and shares their story because it helps so many other people. And I love your tribute to your family, to your priesthood leaders, um, to all the people that in your life and friends that have helped you. And thank you, our listeners out there, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.